Welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. Are you out there, Dan? I am Brian, and I think we can squarely say that we are in spooky season now. For sure. I mean, we're well within it as we're recording, and it will drop sometime later than that. So yes, here with our second October episode, it's us, The Goods. We are a movie podcast, and the movie that I have asked Dan to watch this week is called The Halloween Tree. It comes to us from 1993. It was a TV movie that first aired on the Cartoon Network in the early days of that channel. So what did you know about this one, Dan? Basically nothing. Um, I knew that you had recommended it in the past, and I, I looked up that it was a kid's movie, or at least a cartoon, and I was like, well, I'll take a gambit on it. I don't know... How scary it is or isn't. It looks like it was Hanna-Barbera, so probably not that scary. And I actually watched it with my whole family this past week. So um, I, I but I didn't know anything about it. I, I hadn't seen it before. I hadn't even really seen promos for it. You wrote about it a while ago and I had remembered reading it, but I didn't remember anything about what you wrote. Cool. Well, I'm interested to hear your kids insight. Uh, really what your whole family had to say. But this was adapted from a novella by Ray Bradbury, primarily known as a science fiction author. Have you read much Ray Bradbury, Dan? I think the only one I've ever read by Bradbury is Fahrenheit 451, back which I read back in college, I think, possibly high school. But I don't think I've read anything else by him, quite honestly. So he had a collection called The Martian Chronicles. He's got a few others. What I know him for is Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is actually really similar to the Halloween Tree novella, which he wrote in 1972, and which I also asked Dan to consume. Either read or listen to the audiobook. And have you done that as well? Yep, I did read the Halloween tree novella as well. So I guess that was my second ever Bradbury exposure. It's not too long. I actually did the audiobook. You You sent me a YouTube link of it and I just listened through it there. Right. So longtime listeners may know that I've brought a couple short books to our discussion, namely a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens and the legend of sleepy hollow by Washington Irving. This is a little longer than either of those, but it's not too bad. It's a short book. The audiobook ran about three hours, so I do appreciate you indulging me. Dan also assigned a theme month once of young adult novel adaptations, and I believe in that case you actually went ahead and read the books that went with those, right? Yeah, most of, if not all of them. Yeah. Cool. So 
basically we're a very literate duo. We're well read because we've read five books or or however many books. Five books between the two of us, man. <laughs> wow. Uh, how many Americans can say that, I wonder? <laughs> it is kind of depressing if you ever look up the stats. I used to read so much, or at least a lot more than I do now. In fact, I used to do the 52 and 52 challenge. I don't know if you've ever done that, Brian. It's you try to read 52 books in a year. So that's basically averaging one a week. And there was really two reasons I stopped reading so much. One is that I had a kids and I had less time for it. And then the other one is after I had kids, the main way that I was finding time to read was audiobooks in my commute. And then the pandemic happened and I no longer commute. And so I basically don't carve any space out for me to read anymore, which is something I would like to change. Um, obviously, I've gotten way more in the movies, which has been very enriching, but there's something about the written word that is worthwhile. I don't think it's a controversial take that books are good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I used to read a lot more than I have lately, although I still feel like I spend a lot of time reading text material but it's mostly like Wikipedia articles and the news. And I listen to a lot of podcasts. So it's not like I'm not passively consuming information. That is still happening, whether or not I'm sitting and leafing through pages. But I do have a physical copy of this book, which I actually picked up from a vendor in 2017 when I co-ran a haunted house attraction at the Elks Lodge in Fairfax. Was that the one that I went to? You had like a little haunted house, Brian? Yeah, you were there. And we actually had some like some people come and one person was selling things and he had books and he happened to have a paperback of the Halloween tree. So I'm like, I will buy that. That's awesome. Yeah. I looked up the illustrations too and I was like, oh, these actually add something. And they they're definitely pretty tightly tied with the special itself. Definitely. In fact, I think as as we talk through it, we'll see that they're very intertwined. The the novel and the the special. Right, because this TV special, it's credited as also being written by Ray Bradbury, and he narrates it, pulling in snippets of the original text from the book. So overall, it does stay really faithful to the story in the book. It's just condensed a little bit. It's like economized. And I, honestly, I don't feel like too much that's important gets dropped, but I often feel that way in cases where I see the movie first. We've talked about this. If you go the other way around, you're much more likely to be picky about what's there. Exactly. So I first encountered this film, well, like I said, it came out in 1993, which was a little too early for me to be conscious of it, and I didn't have cable back then. But I did see it pretty early on, probably like 95 or 96, and I watched it with a cousin of mine. And I remember being pretty scared at a couple points. I mean, there's one big one that we'll get to. But it stuck with me. I remembered just the how evocative it was. Yeah, I think it really captures the spirit of Halloween, and, and we'll get into why. Yeah, I think it's um, well-pitched. It's spooky, but not so dreadfully suspenseful that it's, like, tough to watch. But it's it also doesn't shy away from 
the darkness of the material and some real spookiness for sure. And then years later, I dug it up again, probably around the time I made almost a conscious decision to like make Halloween my thing, <laughs> which was in eighth grade uh, in 2003. There were like a few things that happened because that was the year the zombie survival guide was big. There was like the big zombie boom. Like around that time, either 2003 or 2004, you know, we got Shaun of the Dead and the Dawn of the Dead remake and 28 days later, it was just really in the zeitgeist, all of a sudden zombies everywhere. And also my folks cut down, we used to have a big like fir tree out in the yard, in the front yard that took up a lot of the lawn and they cut that down. And so then the lawn was free and I started putting like tombstones out there to make a graveyard. So that was like the moment you transformed from Brian into Count Gauntly. That's right. And it's a little more every year in some ways. I don't know. <laughs> I, I should probably graph that. I'm sure it's like cl climate cycles that historically there may have been peaks, but overall it trends upward. And so I dug this VHS up because for a long time it was only available on VHS and then when I did a Brian Terrell movie night event, my senior year of college in 2012, I was finally able to order a manufacture on demand DVD of this. Have you ever ordered a one of those MOD DVDs, Dan? I've done it for books. I don't know if I've ever done it for a DVD, in part because it's very easy to find movies online, at least recently. That's true. So... Basically, what this is, listeners, is a service where studios have all these titles in their backlog that they don't want to make a million copies of the DVD because it's not going to sell. And so they will press it onto a cheapo disc for you if you specifically request that title. It's also how I got my Captain Sindbad DVD. Hold on, I'm trying to remember what Captain Sindbad is. Captain Sindbad is an example of a Ray Harryhausen knockoff. Okay, so it's not Harryhausen, but it's a knockoff of Harryhausen. Exactly. It's got Guy Williams from the Disney Zorro show from the 50s and Lost in Space. He was the dad. And I assume it stars the black comedian from the 90s. <laughs> no, Dan, that's the movie Shazam. Or is it Kazam? Kazam. I don't remember. I think... <laughs> I think Kazam is the fake one, and Shazam is the real one. That sounds right. It, then the sh sound would carry over from Shaq. Yeah, or maybe I'm just getting those mixed up in my head because <laughs> of the sh sound. But I saw a really good fake Kazam poster recently. Pretty soon we'll be able to AI up a whole Kazam franchise. <laughs> okay, I just looked it up. Sin... Sinbad's was non-existent movie was Shazam and Shaq's movie was Kazam. Okay. And there are some pretty good fake posters out there. It's almost one where I like, I want to get the fake poster and hang it up just to throw people for a loop. <laughs> Muddying the waters. That's one of the ones that people say is a premier example of. Now I started the sentence and I forgot what it was called. What is it called, Brian? It's called the Mandela Effect. That's right. Named for Nelson Mandela, who, if you ask a lot of people, they'll say, oh, he died while in prison. 
but he didn't actually die while he was in prison. So this is like the effect of there is like something in memory that a lot of people have. It's like a, a an invented memory, but like shared across a whole bunch of different people. And there's various explanations for what it actually is. The, another famous one is if you ask people how to spell the Berenstein Bears. There are people who say E-I-N at the end, but it's A-I-N. Exactly. Yeah, it's really Berenstain Bears. And that one's pretty explicable it's because like there's a lot of last names that, that end with Steen, S-T-E-I-N. And so like you could just lump that in together with Berenstain Bears, you know? Right. A lot of it is just you remember poorly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, as a rule, the universal you, we all remember poorly. The one that throws me for a loop a little bit is Skechers Shoes. I swear I remember there being a T in there, but there's no T. That's funny, yeah. Another one is Fruit of the Loom. The underwear and t-shirt brand does not have a cornucopia behind it. But like in my head, it has a cornucopia. But that's just because it's got like the fruit and... Uh, vegetables looking stuff. I think it's actually all fruit because it's fruit of the loom that you would normally see like spilling out of a cornucopia. Huh. I'm picturing a cornucopia as well. You got mandela Well, there you go. The one that I really think we've been pushed from one universe into a slightly different but very, very similar universe is I 100% remember people saying gore blimey as like a cockney euphemism for god blind me but if you look it up written it, people will usually write it core blimey with a c and it's like what how do you get to the c from the g but i i don't know i i i have a strong memory of gore blimey that is the smallest mandela effect that i've ever heard <laughs> proposed one <laughs> Well, they, they make them small, Dan, so they, they think you won't know whoever's pulling the strings. And this has been buzzed on the Mandela effect. <laughs> but here back in, whenever I picked up this tape, tape first, then years later, got the DVD. And then I first listened to the audiobook while I was working, probably in like 2019. So that's more recent that I finally tracked that down and and listened to it. But this came out pretty early in Cartoon Network's history, like it had only been on the air for a year or so. And I've had Dan watch quite a few TV movies at this point. So I think it's kind of remarkable that this one's animated. I mean, you don't see that, at least in this era you didn't, that it's a animated straight-to-TV film. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. It, it had a little more production to it than your typical like TV episode from the era. But it's not like a full-on theatrical release. So it's kind of like an unusual spot, the, the TV special spot that I, you're right. I feel like it was in a diminished capacity, at least as far as animated movies go, you know? Yeah, and it's one of Hanna-Barbera's features that doesn't center around one of their established characters in their stable. Mm -hmm. So another example that I think of in that category is the Charlotte's Web adaptation from, I think that was like 1973. Was that a theatrical release or was that a TV release? Or just that it was Hanna-Barbera? That one was, yeah, that one was a theatrical release, but it was from Hanna-Barbera. I see. Okay. So that's the connection. Also a book adaptation. 
Of course, yeah. Which I watched less than a year ago with my family also. So I, I love that one. Yeah. Really enjoy the Charlotte's Web 1973. And the style of this film, Halloween Tree, it's got like somewhat simplistic character animations, but I think the background art is like really good. I mean, it's it's got some nice... I said evocative already, but that's what I think of. It's like there's skulls hidden all over the place. And a lot of this movie is spent flying in the sky. And like the background paintings of the clouds and the night and the trees down below, I think are all really nice. Yeah, I'm not the best. I'm trying to get better at identifying what type of painting it is when you look at animated backgrounds. Because if you ever read like animation buffs, they'll talk about, oh, I really liked the oil painting backgrounds here or the watercolor backgrounds here. And I was trying to place what the the medium was here. And I think it was a mix, to be honest. I do think there was some watercolors in there, but I don't think everything was watercolor. Um, but I do think some of the night skies where you kind of have the inky colors bleeding together very much at least made me think of watercolors. I would also recommend there's some social media accounts dedicated to posting Scooby-Doo background paintings. Okay. And those are great, like swamps and witch houses and lighthouses and just lots of cool background art produced as part of the Scooby franchise. So this is kind of in that realm. The story takes place in... To quote a snippet from Bradbury, a small town by a small lake in a small northern portion of a Midwest state. So it's a little bit ambiguous. I thought it was interesting in the book. That's how it starts out. And then at the end, all of a sudden they're saying Illinois. Like, <laughs> okay, way to strip away the mystique. Yeah. From like generic suburbia into a very specific thing you're thinking of. But in the movie, it never specifies. And it also doesn't especially specify the time, when it is. So did you have a theory about that, Dan? Interesting you say that, because I also watched Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown, my annual watching of that with the kids, actually right after we watched this. And it had me thinking about how I think probably sometime around when we were kids, maybe a little bit before that, Halloween shifted from dressing up as something spooky to just like dressing up as anything, especially like a much more emphasis on other fictional characters from from franchises and media and stuff. That's obviously not the only thing that people dress up as. People still dress up as a cat or a ghost or a witch. But I feel like more often now you see um, this little... My Little Pony character or this character from this movie or something like that. And then you watch Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown and literally everybody dresses up as a ghost except Lucy who has a witch mask on top of the ghost. Maybe just that's because they were lower middle class and they couldn't afford $35 Halloween costumes. So they just cut holes in moth eaten old bed sheets. But I like to think that something changed. I'm not an anthropologist anthropologist on such matters but something changed somewhere around mid-century late mid-century to go from just generic spooky things ghosts up until like now it's kind of a whole industry of halloween costumes where you can support those big halloween stores what's the famous one spirit, spirit halloween. halloween yeah 
And I feel like this takes place in the middle of it. So it's kind of in that we've t- I've talked about this before, but like the generic late mid century where it could be anywhere from like the 50s to the early 90s, like basically before the cell phone age, because none of the kids have cell phones or are texting each other. But it still is like recognizable as modern America. So that would be my guess. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it was the early 90s when it came out. But there's not really any technology shown. Like, I don't even think they ever show a TV beyond, like, there's cars and things. So we're kind of in this Norman Rockwell realm. We talked about it when we watched Over the Garden Wall. Except Over the Garden Wall gets a little bit more specific because it shows cassette tapes. So we reasoned, like, maybe it was the 80s or something. But here it, it doesn't really show anything and that's kind of the point is it doesn't matter but i'm glad that you said what you said just now dan because that's really interesting i think there has been a change over to it being super ip focused like everything else commercialized and i think it probably happened in the 80s you look at the mass-produced halloween costumes from the 80s and it's all the like hard plastic masks and like a plastic poncho with a logo of whatever the licensed thing is so like a heat like he-man i'm he-man but you'd have a he-man mask and like this plastic sheet with he-man's face on it instead of whatever he-man wears like you don't have the barbarian outfit you just have the the face and a picture (laughs) was very big in the 80s interesting that was when it was emerging to start dressing up, but they didn't quite have the mass production down of a costume that everyone could wear. Like I was Red Ranger. That was my big branded Halloween costume from my youth. I had the hard plastic mask with that one too. But when the film starts out, it's a group of kids who come together in the center of town to trick or treat on Halloween night. And there's four who meet up. In the book, it's eight. But in either case, they realize that one final friend is not there. And this is a boy named Pip. So they're looking around, where's Pip? We can't start Halloween without Pip. And they head off to Pip's house. And actually in the book, Pip gets an entire chapter just describing how great Pip is. So I'm going to toggle back and forth between the two things that we're talking about a little bit dan but what did you think of bradbury's prose because it does bleed into the movie quite a bit so if you go to the youtube video of the audiobook you sent me the top comment is ray bradbury was a painter with words and i think that's fairly accurate he he's very descriptive and he really kind of draws you in with the way that he describes things, I wouldn't necessarily call it like an emphasis on imagery per se. I mean, he does some imagery for sure, but just uh, he, he's very he's got a very good way of describing things that kind of pull you in. That's like it's almost poetic, you know, it, it, but it's still very much just kind of atmospheric prose. And I really liked it, um, the way that he he wrote about things. And it, it just had me wondering, it's like I want to discover more things in this sweet spot where you could like sit down and read it in like two or three sittings or maybe even one extra long sitting. Probably not. It's probably too long for that out loud to your kids, you know? So something that's like a, not quite a full book, but is still like 
you know, not just a picture book either, but also has this kind of literary quality to it. And I feel like maybe Bradbury is kind of the sweet spot of that because as far as it, he, he does a lot, like I think something wicked this way comes is longer, but it kind of has a similar tone where you could like read it aloud and like the whole family would enjoy it. Just that that kind of that type of story, that that type of writing. I really enjoyed it. I felt like it was something something special. I offered to read it aloud to my daughters after we watched the movie and they're like, eh, we already saw the movie and they weren't really interested in it. So because what we normally do is we go the other way is we'll read a book. I'll read aloud to them. And then we'll go and watch the movie. So that's how we saw Charlotte's Web, as I read Charlotte's Web aloud to them, and we went and watched that. But I, I thought it was pretty well written overall. I got, a, I mean, a couple of interesting observations on where he took some of it. But what about you, Brian? I agree with pretty much everything you just said. I do like the style, and it creates an atmosphere that you can surround yourself with. Definitely... Something Wicked This Way Comes is the work that I was going to mention, which really feels like a longer version of this same story because it takes place in October and it's about this evil force that comes into a suburban town in Illinois and these like 13-year-old boys who have to contend with it. So kind of returning to the same bush or tree, if you will, or I guess the word is well. Yeah. <laughs> but I got trees on the brain. <laughs> The one criticism I think you could lob at Bradbury is his prose is very purple. Like, it's just so much time spent on flowery description and so many adjectives. Like, I imagine that at some point going through school, some English teacher took umbrage with his style. <laughs> like, he's really going for that word count. But I noticed listening through a few ticks, like stylistic ticks that he has where he's always saying things are all blank and blank the ravine was filled with various blacks all toad's eyes and raven's beaks things like that but it's like every page has got all something and something <laughs> the movie has some ticks too yes <laughs> do you want to shout it out Dude, sure yeah the one the one that i noticed is there's one character in here who says, oh, my gosh, I think it's the same character every time. I could be wrong, but I was like the fourth time it came up, my like I normally can tune out things like that. I was like, why do they keep saying, oh, my gosh, it's just so bizarre. It happens like 15 or 16 times. <laughs> it's a lot. I've tried to count and that's where I came down, but I may have missed one or two certainly a catchphrase and i was listening for it in the book this time and it actually gets said a few times although in the book it's protagonist tom skelton who says it whereas in the movie it is wally the gargoyle kid so the kids have all got costumes like dan said classic monsters and the four in the movie are tom who is dressed as a skeleton jenny who is the only girl in the book, there are no girls, but she's dressed as a witch. Then it's Ralph, who is a mummy, and Wally, who is a gargoyle. And now they're on the lookout for Pip. Ray Bradbury calls Pip the greatest boy who ever lived. I thought I got a little carried away with Pip. I know it's <laughs> supposed to be like symbolic of youthful innocence and like the glory day memories we have of the cool kids in town and 
the joy of being with other kids and stuff, but pump the brakes on Pip a little bit, dude. <laughs> What's so great about Pip? Greatest boy who ever lived. But I think the point is that he's like the Nexus friend, which is a term that some of my friends and I have come up with, which is like, if that's the guy that you all met through, like each of you knows Pip individually, but you only kind of know each other because you're friends with Pip. And I think it's the same thing with TJ on recess. Oh, okay. He pulls everyone in. Right. He's kind of the best friend of each one of the group individually. But like the reason that the group is a whole is because he's the crux. So that makes him seem cooler than he is because everybody already likes him. That's what I have read into it. Okay. Interesting. But they get over to Pip's house and he's being taken away in an ambulance. But he left a note behind that says he's got appendicitis and so he's being hospitalized for that, but that they should go on and trick or treat without him. And this is pretty much the same. Overall, the, the movie and the book have the same arc, but there's like a few details here and there that are dropped. So maybe I zoned out on it. I don't think it's explicitly listed as appendicitis in the book or, or is that's it? correct. Okay. And not until the very end. Like it's, it's almost flipped. It's like, they don't find this note with the appendix mentioned, or maybe he even says appendix at the end of the book, but it's left mysterious in the text for most of it that he's just like that. He's at the hospital. They know, but they don't have details about it. And it, like, I think they actually go and trick or treat for a while in the book, but in the movie, it's like they, they are going towards the hospital when they come across the haunted house. Right. And I thought it worked a little bit better in the, the special. Actually, it's like they immediately kind of go into this, like when they realize that their friend is dying or potentially dying very sick they go into this strange state, like this this dimension that's like halfway real and halfway not real. And I just th found the transition of it in the the special to be really lovely and just, I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to say the word evocative. <laughs> it kind of taps into like the the way when you're a kid, you can like only half process death as like a physical thing, a physical place. You know, at least when I was a kid, that's kind of how I thought about death is like very much in like when you die, you go somewhere or something like that. And it kind of has that element to it when they go into this ravine to chase down their dying friend. It's like I think that's one thing that's really uh, touching about the story is is the way that it, it kind of taps into that, like the way that a kid might think about death. Great description. It's a little like over the garden wall. Because I guess in that case, the reveal is that they're hospitalized as well, but they're like wandering through the woods that are mysterious and surreal. Right. The unknown, I think they call it. Yeah. Also, I think it's important to note the age of the characters. In the movie, it doesn't actually say. In the book, it says they're 12 and some of them are 13. So that also matches with like Gravity Falls. Yeah. And I think that tracks in the special too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, to get to the hospital, they take a shortcut through the ravine. And I love the description of this ravine. I should have written it down, but you got a little bit of it a moment ago. 
He's like, the ravine where branches clutch. And a voice says, come, stay, linger here forever. Don't go, never leave, stay. And anytime that happens, anytime it's a passage directly from the book, Ray Bradbury's own voice cuts in to say it. That's pretty awesome that they got him in to actually read the stuff that he wrote. But on the other side of this ravine, they they get to the end of the forest and there's this huge haunted house over there that kind of stops them in their tracks. And I almost wonder, like, is it even there most of the year? Oh, completely. Yeah. It's like nightmare logic, like this this house that pops up when simultaneously it's the scariest night of the year. And also you're afraid your friend might be dying. It's like a very metaphysical concept. And the description that we get for the house, I like as well, because Ray Bradbury says, the house looked as if it had been cut out of black marble. With so many chimneys, the roof seemed a vast cemetery, each stone marking the final resting place of some old forgotten god of fire. I, I like it. Yeah, it's good. But they walk up to the door of this house because I think they see at this point there's like a transparent pip running around. They, they might have seen him in the woods the first time. Pretty early on, they see this spectral manifestation of Pip running on ahead of them. And it goes up to the house. I thought the book was a little bit more ambiguous about whether it was like the spirit of Pip or Pip himself. At least at times, it was. It, I felt like it was going for ambiguity. Whereas in the special, it's like very clearly not actually Pip. But like they're mistaking it for real Pip, you know, it's it's got a ghostly quality to it. Yeah. I mean, it's harder to be ambiguous about that when you got to draw him. Yeah. <laughs> so they make him like blue transparent, this thing that they're chasing. And so you get a strong sense that this is Pip's spirit and he's kind of in limbo, like things could go one way or the other this night. But they follow him up to this house and they knock on the door and it's answered by this guy called Mr. Moundshroud, played by celebrity guest Leonard Nimoy. You got thoughts on Moundshroud here at the beginning, Dan? Well, he is. It's hard to come up with a creature that's unique, I would say. But I feel like both Bradbury and the special do a good job of making him be a memorable character. He's got... A little bit of Dracula in him for sure, but he just kind of looks like an alien with this like huge long nose and this very gaunt, deathly face. He's kind of got green skin. He's got a bald head, a little bit of Nosferatu in him, but, you know, dressed like a spooky gentleman. And he's got like sundials on his wrist. He's got like these old school watches that he's always looking at. And I did find him a little bit jarring because... He's distinctly cartoony looking. And, you know, when it's the kids and they're like wandering around the dark woods that are those beautiful painted backgrounds, you know, you kind of are already used to the, the cartoony looking, you know, it's Hanna-Barbera. So it has that kind of flat animation style to it. Um, but it it kind of worked for me when it was just kids in a spooky world. But then all of a sudden we have this cartoon monster and it did jar me out a little bit, but. I think he's an interesting character, and I ended up liking him, spending time with him as the, as it went along. What about you, Brian? 
you're right that he's outlandish and what stuck out to me more this time than usual for some reason he's 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 like come with me and the kids are like all right yeah okay (laughs) it's like well do you should you do that this guy is kind of a weirdo and he's a grown man but okay because i mean there is a reason for it and they go into his backyard because at first he says he's not going to give him any candy and they go out there he also like doesn't explain what's going on yet except that he is miffed that they don't know the lore of their halloween costumes why are you dressed as a mummy why are you dressed as a witch you don't even know but they kind of leave him be for a little while and they go out on his back porch and they see that in Mound Shroud's yard, he's got the Halloween tree, which is this huge tree that has, instead of like apples or something, whole pre-carved jack-o'-lanterns hanging on the branches. And they're all lit. So it's a cool visual. A terrific image. It's this towering tree with, it does a great job of conveying just like infinite branches just so distinct how you have jack-o'-lanterns hanging from it. It's it's a really cool image. And my my daughter's really latched onto it. It's a tree and it's a huge tree, but it has pumpkins on it. Is it a real tree? And things like that. So I thought this was good. And they were wondering why it was the title of the movie because they don't end up spending that much time on it. But I think it's like the central symbol, you know? Absolutely. Soon enough, the Pip ghost bursts out again. He, like, comes out of a pile of leaves, and he shimmies up the Halloween tree. And then we see that up in the branches of the tree, there's a pumpkin that supposedly looks like Pip. I don't really see the face there, but it's it's meant to be his pumpkin. Like, if you've read Amagara Fault, it, this was the one that was meant for him. And they call it pretty close to the start, his pumpkin soul. So there's that connection that somehow like this is his light, this is his spark, and he's got to keep it safe. I was thinking of Hercules, where the fates cut the string of someone when it's their time to die. And it's similar. It's like a candle goes out. What are some other images that you can think of where like Life and death and soul are represented by a physical object, like one per person, Brian. Is there anything else you can think of? Well, there's Davy Jones in the Pirates movies. who has got like his heart in a box and you can control him that way. Whoever's got the heart can steer him around. I'm sure there's other examples. Or a horcrux. Anytime you've got your life force locked inside a little thing. Or the ring, the one ring. But... Mount Shroud has this whole big pile of pumpkin souls, and he gets pretty pissed when Pip tries to take one. He says, give me back my property. So one begins to wonder, what is Mount Shroud's deal? <laughs> and it gets explicit by the end, but I would think the kids would be asking more questions even early on. Right. It is it is kind of evocative of Charon, where it's like there's a fee you have to pay and like co- the collection of souls, I don't know, is like a physical thing, like a like a commodity, uh, currency almost. But yeah, what is this deal, Brian? <laughs> we will see, Dan, because Pip flies away into the night with this pumpkin that he's got. 
And Mound Shroud says, I've got to go after him. Do you want to come with me? And I'll explain the history of Halloween along the way. So the kids say, sure, we'll come help save our friend. And they're going to fly through the Halloween sky to track him down. The way that Mound Shroud proposes they do this is to make a kite out of decrepit old circus posters on the side of an old barn. So they like run across a field to this barn and start ripping the posters down and all the animals on the posters come to life. And then because they're ripping up the posters to make the kite, it's like little pieces of a bunch of different animals all whip stitched together. This is the first of like several crazy passages in the book that I think if you read the book first, you might even think, how would you even film this? And I guess animation is the only answer. But like, if you step back, I mean, being familiar with the movie already as an existing thing, it's like, yeah, okay. They make a bunch of animal pieces together into this flying thing. But if you step back, it's like, this is a crazy visual. That might be an example of like, if you read it first, you might have this grand vision in your mind and any representation of it is going to feel a little bit off. But because I went the other way, I was just seeing what we're seeing here in the the special. Isn't that a conclusion we drew when we did uh, Young Adult Month, Young Adult Adaptation Month? For sure. When we were going yam, that it's better that in general, it's going to be ideal for you to go the other way from film to book rather than vice versa. Yeah, watch the movie first, and you're unlikely to be disappointed by the book. Yeah. Here is where I will say I love the score, the music in this film, especially the main theme, but each of the little vignettes that we're going to have here soon, all the different time periods that they travel through, the instrumental stuff that's going on in the background is always good. And this is music by John Debney. Is that a film composer you recognize, Dan? Not off the top of my head. I did look him up because uh, I agree the score is terrific. It's a very score forward movie and it very much adds to the atmosphere of the film. And uh, I thought it was great. I know I really noticed it in like the opening 20 minutes in particular, like before this journey starts, how it was like it was really setting the mood for for it. But even throughout the film, I think it, it just it kind of soars some and it, it just really makes you feel like you're kind of something part of some grand adventure the way that like great scores do, you know? Yeah. The opening of the film, you're getting the opening credits as the camera pushes in through the clouds down on this town. And there's like little half seen skull shaped clouds and pumpkin shaped clouds. And you get this music that goes, na, 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 and then you get like the little girl singing the you know the eerie you go up an octave and it's really good i'm so thankful that somebody has put up this backing music as a playlist on youtube somewhere they got like really clean original music and you could just listen to the whole thing and put yourself in that mind space john debney is not a name that you might think of as like John Williams or Alan Silvestri, Hans Zimmer. That was the one I was trying to think of. But 
he gets pretty good rotation. He did the score in Elf. So like when Buddy's walking through the the North Pole world, you get some good John Debney music. Another one that I would shout out is Trevor Jones. Like, uh, listen to the Arachnophobia score or the Merlin TV movie score. Trevor Jones has some bangers too. Oh yeah. <laughs> He's actually scored a couple things that we've talked about on the pod, Brian. Um, he did at least a couple of the Spy Kids movies and... He is also credited on Greatest Showman, and I was trying to determine, I think he actually did co-write some of the songs. At least he has uh, credits on it. Um, so he's a professional. Yeah. He yeah. makes his living. He's a known name. He's a he's a real-ass dude, yeah. But I think this is like some of his best work, at least that I've heard. He really knocked it out of the park. Definitely. I think it's I think it's a great score. The kids in Mound Shroud have this kite now, and they fly off into the sky. And over the rest of the film, they're going to touch down in different eras of Halloween that correspond to the costumes that each kid is wearing. And each kid will get a mini act where they're kind of central. But there's repeated elements in each of these stops. So... Can I tell you what I was thinking right here? Please. So one thing you didn't mention that really caught my attention at first is that when they get to this house, it's very distinctly described both in the prose and in the special is that it has a Marley knocker. So a knocker on the front door that looks like the one that's described in A Christmas Carol that turns into the ghost of Marley when... Scrooge is walking back to his house after eating dinner by himself on Christmas Eve. And to me, I thought this told me a couple things. So one is that I think that Bradbury was going for a Christmas Carol in general of being like a timeless story that that people will hopefully come and revisit. Like that's what he was kind of aiming for in general. That kind of captures the essence of the holiday in some ways. But what I was hoping this meant explicitly is that it was going to be like, flashbacks on our characters specifically we're gonna like learn more about what makes pips so great and we're gonna trace different events maybe past halloweens or something like that that would really have been a christmas carol riff and i thought you were gonna it was gonna be like a stealth christmas carol it was gonna be like a halloween christmas carol but it ends up not being exactly that and so when it transforms into this thing that's kind of less about the characters specifically although we do get some more depth into the relationship between pip and these other characters which i thought was nice I was a little disappointed. And as we kind of talk about them, we can. Uh, one thing I wanted to say is what I really started thinking of is have you ever read the Magic Treehouse books, Brian? I have read quite a few of the Magic Treehouse books. I used to follow that religiously and I kind of aged out of it and it just kept going. There are so many of those books. There really are, yeah. And the premise of that is um, a brother and a sister have a treehouse, as you would guess, that takes them back into different historical time periods. And they get to like basically witness what life was like during that period. And the rest of this basically plays out as like a slightly dark, slightly spooky series of magic treehouse adventures where they like go and they're witnessing some part of life in these different historical and ancient cultures with things that relate to death specifically, which I guess is not a part of Magic Treehouse, but 
like you just kind of get these little snippets of like the the past culture and that's kind of all of what uh magic tree house is about good call i can see that i think i read like the first 30 magic tree house books oh wow and it, yeah at that point there was like a whole like universe going on that merlin is involved it got complicated and a little bit less about the, and here's what the Pilgrims did, and here's what the Titanic was. Gotcha. I've read through eight of them. I read out like five out loud to my daughter, and then I've listened on audiobook. We have a audiobook set of the first eight. I'm really glad that you pointed out the Marley Knocker, because I absolutely think that Bradbury was trying to make a Halloween Christmas carol. I would like to see what we might have gotten if they had dug a little bit more into these characters, but they're not really important as individual people. They are ciphers. The kids exist so that we can make these stops because Bradbury really wants to make this arc about the history of Halloween. So we go chronologically visiting the points that match each kid. So Ralph the Mummy means we get a stop in ancient Egypt. Jenny the Witch, we stop in pagan England. So there's there's witchcraft going on. It's it's basically, I guess it's it's like the Middle Ages. It's like uh Haxon. Yes. Then Wally and the Gargoyles, there's a stop at Notre Dame in Paris. And the last stop is focused on Tom, who is definitely most prominent in the book, but he does get a little of the main character treatment in the movie, too. Mm -hmm. We just spend a little more time with him. Real convenient that they each dressed up as like one time period that they were going to go visit. Right. So for him, the skeleton, they're at the Day of the Dead in Mexico. So like Coco or... What was that other one that came out right at the same time? Book of Life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's similar beats at each of these stops. So each one they fly to in some new way. Like, they fly on brooms. They fly on autumn leaves. They... At one point, there's, like, flying pinatas. They just always... You can't fly the same way twice. Gotta be some new segue. Oh, one time they ride gargoyles. Also, by the end of the movie, Moundtrout is just straight up flying on his own. <laughs> I would have questions by that point. Like, how is he doing that? He's like Voldemort. Well, hold on. Was he ever supposed to be human? I never took him as human. But, like, is that how the kids are supposed to be perceiving him? Well... I would just have more questions <laughs> if he's the guy, th this is a grown man again. And he's like, follow me into the sky. I guess, you know, that magic is happening by that point. I guess, you know, I mean, I'm not sure it's any better or worse to like have a ghoul who can fly say, Hey, here, come, come with me. As opposed to like a creepy old man saying that. So I, to your point, I, I don't think they're exercising good judgment, whether they perceive <laughs> him to be human or goblin, but yeah. Little green ghouls, buddy. Yeah. Gotta have a goblin. By the time we reach the end of the movie, and, and we'll get there, I mean, Mount Shroud has got some heft to his identity. But each of these stops, they fly in, they land in the time period, and they witness Halloween festivities. 
at this place, which really means, more accurately, rituals associated with death, like you said. Death and burial. So in ancient Egypt, there's a mummy getting put in a pyramid. And at each of these venues, Pip shows up, locked in some new form. So in ancient Egypt, he's the mummy who's getting buried. And in the witch times, he's got his soul trapped in a black cat. And when they're at Notre Dame, he's trapped inside a gargoyle. And so each of these times, the kid who's featured in this era has to, like, step up and prize Pip out of the little, like, prison that he's in. And when this happens, that character has a moment of heart-to-heart dialogue with Pip. So, like I said, it seems that Pip is, like, the individual best friend of each of them. I've put a little more import on these face-to-face, heart-to-heart exchanges each time I watch the movie. I almost wish there was more, because it's not a whole lot, but it it's like it wants you to believe that they have a life and a history outside of this night. It's like, this is a, a world that exists. I don't know if you got a lot out of this. I've seen this movie so many times, and so this is like the hint of a rabbit hole that these characters have interiority. Right. And a past. I think it was a good contribution because it like at least ties it back to the characters who are it's supposed to be ciphers for us, you know, that we're supposed to not just be like watching an educational video, but like carrying what happens to the characters. They're our way into the world. It actually had me thinking of another property for kids with the word magic in the title, and that is Magic School Bus, where every episode of the the old animated Magic School Bus show had some character who was like the main character focus of that episode. And they'd have like a little bit of a conflict where they're kind of challenged and they have to overcome some fear that's tied in with the thing that they're learning about. And even some of the way that like the kids kind of like learn as they're going in this reminded me of the way that kids learn as they're going in magic school bus. And they like are like unnaturally excited about what they're learning in some ways. I I don't know if you got any magic school bus vibes here, Brian, if you hadn't brought it up, I was going to bring up magic school bus. Also actually magic school bus, the show started in 1994. So right around this same time too. Oh, interesting. And you have the constant transformations, just always turning into things like magical transportation. They're going around with the adult guardian and it's a group of children. And the most specific magic school bus connection I see is that you started with books where there's a big group of kids. Like Miss Frizzle has a normal American sized classroom and she's got like 20 kids in the books. You couldn't have that many actors that you're paying for every week on a TV show. So they had to shrink it down. And in that case, you've got eight kids. Four boys, four girls that you focus on. Very small class. Maybe they go to a Montessori school or something. (laughs) But the book of Halloween Tree is economized in the same way. You go from eight featured kids down to four in the special. I think even more than just actors, it's like there's lost efficiencies in having that many characters in that you project on for some reason it works better in books to have more characters and it's 
I guess you need to like each character on a a screen needs to have like distinct characteristics and kind of like a purpose or something like that. I mean, the books for Magic School Bus are a delivery system for information. You don't really care about the characters there. The TV gave them more personality. And it's kind of complicated with that because they ended up doing book adaptations of episodes that are like branded and marketed to look like the old Magic School Bus original books. So you might be confused if you just like bought a whole bunch of Magic School Bus books because you have the older original that I think are like really terrific by Joanna Cole and Bruce Deegan. Joanna Cole is the writer and, and Bruce Deegan is the the illustrator. And they they both do a terrific job. They have like all of the really information dense pages where there's lots of cutaways and like uh, cutaways isn't the right word in a book where they have these little. They're like inserts. They're little charts and things. Yeah. Like, did you know factoids and just like really cool, almost diagrammatic illustrations of like how things work. And then when the TV show became popular, they like printed out these much cheaper, much less compelling books that still like try to teach you. But they really are just it's almost like screen caps from the episodes with text underneath it, basically. And it's just the main eight characters, the main eight students in those. Whereas you're right, if you go in the old ones, it does have some of the characters, but it has a whole bunch of extra kids, too, that are not really recognizable if you've only seen the show. It also makes me think somewhat of Arthur, where Arthur had a design where you could tell he was an aardvark, and then they simplified him and made him more human-y for the TV show, and then the later books have the TV design. Or maybe they settled, you may know the history better, maybe he settled into that simplified design even pre-TV show, but where the look changes significantly in the later books. Yeah, I don't know if that's like a Clifford situation. <laughs> what is a Clifford situation? Where basically there was like an, an initial design and then it became like a franchise. I don't know exactly when the TV show came into it, but then the author continued churning out books in like this new franchise style that were like original they were original stories for books, but they were like in line with this broader universe that wasn't just for the books. Like it had to, and you also see that in Berenstein Bears too. Like if you go back and read the earliest Berenstein Bears, they really look bear-like. Like they have these big long claws and their like snouts are more bear-like. And then they got smoothed into something that he was able to churn out or they, I guess, because it's uh, Stan and Jan Berenstein. We're able to churn out a whole bunch of them in like more, yeah, anthropomorphic type designs. Right. So I think that is the same phenomenon. Concept unification, Dan. <laughs> Listen back to our Rock of Fire Explosion episode. I was going to say at some point you need like a, a, a list of all of our inside jokes. <laughs> you need an answer key. Yeah. The goods companion guide. But... I will say, I think I've been, I was listening to a couple of other movie podcasts recently and they don't shy away from doing their own inside jokes and then not explaining them. And it's it, it, like, it makes you want to be a part of their inside jokes if they don't have to explain it every time, you know, it feels like you're hanging out with them. Like you kind of gather the inside jokes over time. Have you seen the meme? It's like 
kids on the side of an ice cream truck, a printed image of like kids laughing. And then there's another guy, a human guy, like leaning against the truck, like he's laughing along with the people. <laughs> no, and it says, this is what it feels like listening to podcasts. <laughs> I, I got to send you that one. That's good. Yeah. But at their last stop, they go to Mexico for the day of the dead. This is Tom's time to shine. And Mount Shroud pulls Tom aside at the edge of the graveyard where all the people are hanging out with their candles and you've seen Coco. You know what the deal is. Honoring their ancestors. But at the far side of the cemetery, there's this tomb going down into the earth and Mount Shroud says, Pip's down there, boy. Bring him up. And Tom has to go descend down into the underworld here and reclaim Pip's soul. And I feel like this plays into the idea that, like, going underground, a tomb, a basement, is like the core of horror. This is an idea in It, too. Like, the very first scary thing that happens is you gotta go down into the basement. And people kind of talk about that a universal experience is like, oh, you gotta turn the basement light off, you gotta run back up the stairs. Or whatever is down in the basement is gonna is gonna grab you. Did you feel any of that? Yeah, and I think that kind of just ties to the fact that most cultures bury the dead, you know. So like, underground is like associated with death, and something about yeah, when you're a kid. Now I'm talking about like <laughs> modern America, you know, it's modern suburbia. When you turn off the lights. All you all of a sudden you feel like you're uh oh I'm in, ensconced in darkness and I got to get out of there as soon as I can. We've evolved instinctively, like pretty much all animals, that you don't want to be dark, you don't want to be cold, you don't want to be wet. Get up out of there. Get back to the light. Good advice, Brian's advice. Don't be dark. Don't be cold. Don't be wet. <laughs> if you got those three, you're doing all right. And so down in the crypt, there's like a bunch of mummies, except, well, the like Mesoamerican kind of mummies, like the natural, all desiccated Peruvian mummies, not the Egyptian style. Right. Like, so the skin tightens and pulls back and it looks like they're doing that emoji with the mouth wide open, except the spooky version of it. What it's a lot like is in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they get through the snake wall and then Marion like falls falls into a little pit and there's just a bunch of corpses that vibe so they got to run the gauntlet and they run down the hallway and and grabs Pip's soul and and leads him up out at which point Mound Shroud takes possession of the pumpkin the kids are like what the hell you said if we get to him first we could save Pip and Mount Shred says, nope, this is my property. His time has come to an end. And so now if you didn't know, which you probably should have known by this point, but this is when any pretense falls away and Mount Shroud is death himself. Mount Shroud just is the Grim Reaper. He still looks like the weird bald alien dude, but this is his job is collect souls and, and harvest the dead. And I guess this was supposed to be more of a surprise than it was. Sees like the Reaper come in to collect what he needs, you know, 
like like I said with Charon. Yeah, and there's times when like they go to Notre Dame and he like can't go into the holy ground and there are just I would think that the kids would not be so surprised at the end and yet <laughs> He's like, yep, I'm collecting his soul because he's dead now and I'm death. And they're like, (gasps) (laughs) who would have thought that the the guy who looks like a vampire and can fly around and glorifies various historical. What am I thinking of? Funerary Uh, practices. Yeah. Would in fact be related to death himself. He's like, he's very clearly a supernatural type guy. And his name is Mound Shroud. So burial mound, burial shroud there. And they're upset. I would be upset. The kids are not cool with this. We did the work. We should have some say in what happens to Pip's fate. And I like that in the movie, the kids come up with this idea. In the book, Mountroud has this contract ready to go. But in the movie, Tom says, look, what if I give you a year of my life? in exchange for Pip. And that's what they all offer. All the kids say, I will live one year less than I otherwise would have if you let Pip stay alive. So what do you think of this resolution, Dan, this this deal that is struck? I liked it. I thought it was poetic and it played in nicely with the themes that the film and story had kind of set up of these kids who are kind of living the prime of their youth and kind of playing around in Halloween without quite like properly appreciating that it's like connected in distant chronological horizons with like the true fear of death and trying to come to grips with it. And so this idea that they're marching to a shorter life, marching closer to the finish line, the big sleep and that they're kind of acknowledging the dark undercurrent of this as they're like right at the age where they're turning from kids to adult. That felt poetic to me and like kind of aligned with what I really thought the opening of the story was going to do, which was kind of a more poetic and personal look at death. But I I thought I really liked it. I thought it worked. What about you? Yeah. This was one of two things that I remembered from when I watched it when I was five, was this had an impact. The idea that they're bargaining with their own lives to save their friend, I I really like. The other thing that I remembered is when they go to ancient Egypt, they visit a family, and the family has the corpse of their grandfather at the dinner table, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And you get a jump scare cut to a close-up on the corpse face. And that scared the shit out of me. It is very creepy. My three-year-old did not like that one. So maybe she'll remember, you know, 30 years from now. But, like, nothing else is quite that scary. I guess everything else is built to a little more. That sudden jump scare cutaway to the corpse at the table. Yeah. (laughs) I also feel like there's a little bit of it with the mummy, too, in the ancient Egypt one. Or maybe I'm just getting that mixed up with the Peruvian one or whatever culture it is. Yeah, I mean, those corpses are creepy, too. Yeah. That lunge out at him down in the tomb. My favorite of these little episodes, though, is the Notre Dame one. Talk about that. Yeah. 
So first of all, I think Notre Dame is like just a beautiful piece of architecture. And I love media that spends time there because there's just something really resonant about it as, of course, a place of worship. But also there's just something kind of haunting about it, too. And I think we've seen that in a lot of different media. But the way that it's shot here is like expressionistic. It's like this. It's not completed. They're like still there for the construction of it but it's still kind of like shot in this sprawling upward look. That's not just like a angular piece of architecture, but it's like you really get the sense of how daunting it is. And then it ends up essentially constructing itself as we follow the kids. They're kind of chasing down Pip and like the gargoyles come up and stuff. And we see the whole thing kind of rise and um, I just thought it was really interesting, and I liked the way that that they depicted all of the really interesting architecture of a cathedral. This is another section in the book that I think if you were just reading it, you might struggle to picture how you would, would do it. And I think they do a good job in the film that the kids are running through the air, and like each time they take a step, a uh, roof tile or a uh, timber flies into place to hold them up. And it that gradually builds piece by piece the cathedral as they climb into the sky. And uh, just another really great image. Bradbury says that cathedrals hold back the night. And that's about all you get in the special. But we'll talk more here in just a second. We don't want to hold you too long, listeners, but... The book has way more about the spirituality of everything and the religious history that's downplayed here in the film, but not absent. I mean, Bradbury is still steering the ship with his writing, but the kids are able to strike this bargain and save Pip. Although I wonder, is he just going to live to be 17 now? Unclear. They exchanged four years total. Does that mean Pip only gets four years? Is he going to die in high school? I was thinking about this because for most people, death is not like an instant event where it's like a fork in the road. It's either it does happen or it doesn't happen. Like it's like a, a systemic failure of the body. The body stops working, you know? So it's not like you can just say, well, I trade my soul for a year. But like, what? how, how does that convey in the body? Maybe I'm too literal about it. Like, Okay, does it cure his appendix? So now he's not sick from appendicitis? You're right. Does that mean it just gets deferred for four years? Or is it like there's some quantitative exchange rate between amount of time traded to the Grim Reaper to the amount of healing that occurs inside the body? I don't know. And isn't that more dependent on like the medicine that the doctors give him? Does it like make the medicine more effective? Do they, oh, now they can afford better medicine or something? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's like saying grace for the food on the dinner table it's like well who got you that food who 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 put the food on the table actually gets gets metaphysical but i'm sure the kids if they didn't ask mount Shroud this night like soon thereafter they were wondering like oh wait a minute <laughs> what exactly is the fine print of this thing yeah and i guess there is something to be said like the body does heal itself you know so like if you just kind of escape and survive then yeah, maybe he does live to be 75 years old now because he, is, he had one brush with death that he escaped and then he doesn't have any other serious bouts of illness, which does happen to people. But they make their way back to town where they find that Pip is well again at his house. 
And then they all head back to their own houses. And there's another passage from Bradbury about a glorious happy tiredness filling their limbs. And, you know, we pull back from the town again into the Halloween sky and Mound Trout like blows away. All the, all the pumpkins blow out on the tree and Mound Trout snuffs out like smoke, which I think is a really good ending. And I think this perfectly captures maybe better than any other movie that I've seen the transition between like 1159 1031 and 1201 1101 like the change that happens instantaneously between Halloween and now it's November interesting it's like uh it's it's now like late autumn and yeah yeah okay put up the Christmas tree (laughs) no there's there's this period of like decompression holiday decompression of about like two weeks after halloween where you're getting the halloween down before you have to worry about christmas and it's this nebulous time and i i think this just gets it right that's interesting yeah you've talked about that in the past like the the feeling of of just now you're waiting again some more but it's also still like a time of decay you know Mm mm-hmm I, I want to go back to, to one thing you said, the wonderful, happy tiredness. And um, one thing I, I really admire about my six-year-old, so I have two kids, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, is I feel like she, she lives her life where she, when she's awake, she's going 100%. She's like, she's living in every moment and she never is like holding back. And then at the end of like every day, she's like so tired. She falls asleep like in four minutes after she lies down. And I've always just admired that, like just living full tilt, full throttle while you're awake. And then when it's time to go to sleep, you've you've since you've put everything out there, you have that happy kind of tiredness with you that you can go to sleep knowing that you live the full day. And uh, I appreciate that. I, I like that turn of phrase, a wonderful, happy tiredness. One more thing about the movie before we just highlight a couple differences in the book is when Tom gets down into the crypt and is face to face with the Pip spirit, the personal thing that Tom says to Pip is, I'm sorry, this is my fault that you're dying because I wished once that something would happen to you and I could become the group leader. I even forgot about this. This is so weird. So that's, yeah, that's like dark. And I have put more weight on that as I've watched it more times. Yeah, I I wonder a little bit, like (laughs) the enmity between Tom and Pip. And I have like a whole headcanon I actually have some ships, Halloween tree ships, Dan. Really? Would you indulge me for a moment? Sure, Brian. When else are you going to get the chance? (laughs) Never again. So I think Tom is into Jenny, but assumes that Jenny is into Pip. Okay. I think Pip is actually gay with Ralph. (laughs) Okay. Because the, so Ralph came first. He's the first one who talks to Pip. And he's like, you're the only one who's never made fun of me wearing glasses. And you said you were going to teach me to play sports. And I don't know. I I think there's something there. 
we don't really get to see much of Pip. We don't know Pip's deal. We just see what each person like projects onto Pip. And the thing that Pip says to Jenny is, you wouldn't want Tom to see you cry, would you? So I think there's definitely some some Jenny Tom stuff going on. Hmm. I don't know. Watch it every year for the next like 20 years and then tell me what you think. But <laughs> and I don't think anybody loves Wally. <laughs> I think Wally's just out in the cold. He's the gargoyle guy, right? Yeah. It's like, dude, if the you stop saying, oh, my, oh my gosh, gosh, too much. Yeah. <laughs> He's got to work on himself. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're glancingly hitting on something that the special could have done a little bit more with. I don't think it needed to. I don't think it was really missing it. But like right around this age, it's like interesting as a human being when you enter adolescence, you like become a little bit more aware of death and also become a little bit more aware of romance and your body and sexuality and things like that all around the same age. And I think psychologically, there's a lot tying together violence and death and sexuality. I mean, I think that's why like slasher as a genre works in some ways, you know, I mean, I don't think that's a secret at all. And, you know, these are what 13 year olds. So that's like right around the age that that stuff would start to become a factor in their life. Yeah. Certainly there's not a lot that's text. No, definitely not. I think there's just the tiniest bit of subtext. I think that's fair. Okay. Quickly. I want to talk about the novella that I had you listen to, Dan. So the big difference, I would say, well, it's longer, obviously. There's more characters. The kids who got dropped each have their own little vignette, although they're kind of like melded together, some of them. So it, it's not like there's four scenes that we dropped, more like two and a half scenes got dropped. But the kids who didn't make the cut there's a beggar, a caveman, a ghost, and a grim reaper, who's just redundant, because not only do you have Mound Shroud that you're traveling around with, you have a skeleton already. So why do you need a kid who's the grim reaper? You don't. Cut that kid. <laughs> and overall, the book, I would say, is like preachier. And it's not explicitly religious. It's more like a humanist work, but... It has a teleological view of human history, like we're working towards a goal. And the whole history of Halloween, as depicted by Ray Bradbury, is the story of slowly sloughing off superstition. Oh, interesting. So becoming less and less religious over time. Right. So each of the acts that we stop at, like the ones we get in the movie, so we've got the witch era, which is paganism. And then you don't, we don't see it in the movie, but in the book, like the Christians come through and they burn all the witches. And then that's when the cathedral comes up. And the whole theme is about holding back the night, holding death at the door, which Bradbury takes all the way back to caveman times. He says that back when we were animals, we just worried about death all the time and there was no time for being pensive about it. It's just, you had flight and flight and that was it all, all day long, all the time. And there was no resting space where culture could spring up. But then at some point in the ape man days, as he says, we mastered fire and we brought 
the fire of summer into our caves and were able to keep death at the door and death became a sometimes food. It became an idea. And so like when you're not in mortal peril all the time, you can make art and civilization. And that was kind of the beginning of history. All of, all of this to say that we get in the book more of that message, that we are moving forward. Christianity replaced paganism. It's all in the name of, like, day is conquered by night, and will the sun come back? Harvest precedes the onset of winter, and will the warm days return? And that the core of humanity is about dealing with mortality. But the thing that is in the book that's not in the movie is Bradbury takes this further into the future, and he says, one day, we're not going to be worried about death anymore because we will master space travel. We will reach the stars and either because of that or just in the sense that that's such an impossibly far away goal, somewhere along the way towards that goal, we are also going to master death. Which is just like a little sentence long bullet point in the tail end of the book, but I think is like a big deal for Bradbury. Yeah, I was going to say, he doesn't really dwell on it. I I remember him saying it and I didn't really process it too much because to me it's like kind of part of the bigger picture of, I think it's kind of in the spirit of the special where these kids haven't really had to think about death in their lives. And so they do these, the silly Halloween thing without realizing like how connected it is with ancient traditions about death and ancient viewpoints about death that have kind of bubbled up in the present into like dressing up as spooky things, you know, it is kind of a weird thing. You're right. He, he, he waxes a little bit, you know, on his thoughts. And I think this is towards the tail end of Bradbury's career. So he didn't, he could, he didn't necessarily have much of an editor when he was writing. He could write whatever he wanted, but yeah, it's sure. It's interesting to me. I always get a little annoyed when horror suddenly there's science fiction, suddenly there's space stuff. Like, unless you're H.P. Lovecraft or something, and the whole idea is the horror is cosmic, like, don't, I don't want space. Keep space out of this. Space <laughs> is for different kinds of stories. Right. But, I mean, I guess it ties in with part of the point is that there's shifting viewpoints of death, and in the future, there will be shifting viewpoints of death, too. And we as a culture need to be prepared for that. It's not a very well-developed idea, but I guess futurist space i mean i can see like flavor wise it kind of diminishes the the feeling of it yeah but it's the whole arc that's more thoroughly there in the book than in the special i think they made some smart choices in the special but i think this was an idea that was important to ray bradbury because the next year 1970 actually I guess it was the previous year, 1971, and Halloween Tree was 72 when he wrote it. But in 71, he was invited to present a poem, a new poem that he wrote 
when the spacecraft Mariner 9 reached Mars. So this was an event. Carl Sagan was there. Various 70s science personae. And it was Mars. And maybe Bradbury's, one of his better known books is he wrote the Martian Chronicles. So they had him come, come and talk. And he shared a poem that he wrote called, If Only We Had Taller Been. And I'd like to recite that now, if that's okay. Please do. The fence we walked between the years did balance us serene. It was a place half in the sky where, in the green of leaf and promising of peach, we'd reach our hands to touch and almost touch the sky. If we could reach and touch, we said, t'would teach us not to, never to, be dead. We ached and almost touched that stuff. Our reach was never quite enough. If only we had taller been and touched God's cuff, his hem. We would not have to go with them who've gone before, who short as us stood as they could stand, and hoped by stretching tall that they might keep their land, their home, their hearth, their flesh and soul. But they, like us, were standing in a hole. O oh, Thomas, will a race one day stand really tall, across the void, across the universe and all? And measured out with rocket fire, at last put Adam's finger forth, as on the Sistine ceiling. And God's hand come down the other way, to measure man, and find him good, and gift him with forever's day? I work for that. Short man, large dream, I send my rockets forth between my ears, hoping an inch of good is worth a pound of years. Aching to hear a voice cry back along the Universal Mall, we've reached Alpha Centauri. We're tall. Oh, God, we're tall. What do you think of this poem, Brian? I like it. And I think it's a concise statement of the Bradbury ethos, because that's the idea that is in the Halloween tree story stretched out, that... We're working towards the stars and either directly connected with that or like in poetic association with that, we're working towards not having to die anymore. I think you're right. I think this kind of unlocks that theme a little more for me in the the book that the conquering of death, of expanding our horizons in every dimension, physically and temporally is really man's great journey. Man's great goal is to, to further extend those things, to stand taller, reach further. So I like that. I think that's a good connection. It, it feels like Spaceship Earth at Epcot. It's like the history of communication is reaching out and we're going a little further every eon. And that's The Halloween Tree, both written and in film. I thank you for watching it, Dan. Now I think it's time to say, is it good? Did you have anything else to add about the special or the book? No, we can we can go for it. So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So are we rating the book and the special separately? Or are we just rating the special, Brian? What would you like to do? Oh, let's rate both, I guess. 
Okay. Uh, we'll do them together. Okay. So when this special started out, and I, I did watch the special before I read the book, I was really vibing with it. I just thought it was doing a great job of capturing that kind of untouchable, unknowable feeling of encroaching darkness and death and scariness that that great horror often does, but like in a very kid-friendly package in a way that like a kid would kind of process. And I thought it was kind of magical in that regard. I do feel like it lost its touch a little bit when it became a history-hopping tour of the different ways that ancient cultures have talked about death. And I, I don't think it's bad at all for those sections. And I like that it continued to connect with the characters. Like, um, I thought it was nice how we kind of learned how each of the characters felt more connected with Pip. And I don't know, just kind of brought home the the feeling of death as a personal connection a little bit more. And I think some of the compositions and backgrounds are like really artful and lovely. And we've said evocative a bunch of times, but that really is the right word. Um, just bringing the, the sense of the, the season and spookiness out. I, I do think it butts up against its, I don't know if budget is the right word, but like the the cartooniness of the characters and stuff does detract from it a little, a little bit, the atmosphere. But it's still very atmospheric, I would say, overall. So I'm kind of on the fence between a five and a six, a good and a very good. I guess I'll land at a high five good with maybe if I watched it again, I would I would be feeling more very good now that I kind of know exactly what to expect going into it and can really just kind of vibe with it and 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 uh, flow along with exactly what it's trying to do and how it's thinking about its themes and what and what it's trying to accomplish. Well, let's call it a five for now. And I would say I'm at like a pretty similar boat on the novel. Um, because I really think Bradbury's p- prose really sucks you in. You're right, it does get a little over descriptive and to the point that like I felt like I was tuning out a couple of times in part because it was so close to the story of the special that I really just felt like I was living through the the special again, mostly. But you're right, it does tackle some things a little bit differently and has characters a little different and all that. Um, So I'm going to give that one a good as well. Both of them upper end goods with the potential to go up to a six. So that's where I'm at, Brian. Um, But what about you? Great. Well, I'm not too different. Everything that you said, I pretty much agree with. For the movie, I'm actually going to edge just into seven, which we call exceptionally good. I think you're right that like the first 20 minutes of this are incredible. Like the introduction of the town, them passing through the ravine, them coming to the house. And each of those visuals has like an extended, like a paragraph from Bradbury. And then it gets a little more piecemeal and also repetitive once they're popping into the different history periods. It's like a fetch quest. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, you get your beat with the kid. Pip is trapped in a place. Pull him out of the place find some new way to fly and yeah it gets a little bit more robotic and it kind of comes back again though for me at the end when they bargain for the life and they get sent back to the town and there's going to be more life ahead so it really works for me a lot of that is maybe that i was exposed to it so young 
but I really vibe with it. The points that it loses maybe is just, I'd kind of like to see what it would be if it were a theatrical release, if the character design was a little bit more fleshed out. But I like that Bradbury is at the helm, that he had so much creative input on it. I think that is for the better. But I don't like the book as much. I'm actually going to give the book a five, a good. I think they made the right choices when expediting it for the special, that it's not quite so preachy. And maybe that's just that I watched the movie first, as we've said a couple times here tonight. But two big things, changes from the book to the movie. It's all boys in the book, just all boys, even though one of them is dressed as a witch. So I think it's crying out for one of them to be made a girl. I, I think that was a good choice. Maybe it was mandated by the 90s. You know, this is the era of the Planeteers and the Puzzle Place. It's like, you gotta, you can't just have just guys anymore. You can't just have a sausage fest. Gotta work a girl in there somewhere by the, the dictums of political correctness. But I think it works. I think it helps the presentation. One other thing, though, I think the biggest visual from the book that's not in the special is the Samhain scene where they run into the pagan Grim Reaper God of Death and he's like 40 feet tall and he's mowing down souls with his scythe. And like when he cuts through the people, they turn into animals. You would have liked to have seen that one. It's just a no. Well, I think it's wise that they cut it because I think that would probably be too intense for kids. Yeah, maybe. Just it's like the only wild visual in the book that they didn't work into the the seventy minute. Like this is a pretty svelte presentation. It's not long, and that's the Halloween tree. So seven and five for me, but pretty much in agreement with the way that you described it. You had asked me, you were curious what my family thought of it, and I did give you some of that, but a couple other things. I did ask them if they had any reviews they wanted me to share on the podcast, and or what was the thing that they most remembered about it? And my six-year-old said the thing that she most remembered was that it was a tree that had a lot of pumpkins on it, and it looked so unusual, which I was like, yeah, that is that is a memorable image, I agree. But my three-year-old said that the thing that she thought most about was Pip getting transported back to the hospital and to his house from when he was in the tomb. And how could that have happened? And I was like, that's actually pretty cool because she's kind of like engaging with the concept of the separation of like the soul and the body. And we did talk a little bit about that and like how it was trying to show that. Kind of hard for a three-year-old to process, but I thought that was like a, a good observation by her for something that she really connected with. Yeah, it's a great question. She was really fascinated by, he. if Pip was on the journey with them, how did he end up back at the hospital and back at his house? So, there we go. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's like a hard and fast answer to that. It's, it's magical. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I, I do really think this is worth watching. Um, it's just, the the imagery of it is is really great. Like, even when we were kind of a little lower on the when they're going through all the historical periods, there's still lots of really cool imagery in it. That's, it's worth watching. And it's a good excuse for a variety of John Debney music. Like, that's true. Seriously, I'm going to drop in our Discord, which listeners, you should join. 
the link to the playlist because like the broom dance tune and the Egyptian pyramid tune and it's all evocative. It is. That's the best word. There was an episode four or five back where Dan kept saying painterly a whole bunch of times. And I just think it's the appropriate adjective in this case. Well, thank you, Dan. I thought that was fun. Glad to watch it again. But what will we be covering next here on the podcast? So I'm going to be picking The Haunting from 1963, which is one of the canonical haunted house horror movies. And to be honest, I've only seen a couple of haunted house horror movies. So it will be kind of a learning experience for me. I'm curious about it, how well it's aged. It's it's from 1963, so it's 60 years old now. And I think it'll be interesting. So that is The Haunting from 1963, directed by Robert Wise. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, Brian, I'm looking forward to spooky season continuing with you. Yes, me too. Look forward to it every year. It's our fourth one, and it still feels fresh. Yeah. So thank you, Brian, and thank you, listeners. Bye, everybody. Bye.